0: Hey, thanks for tuning in to another bonus episode from the Greatest Trek team. This one's about the movie Event Horizon, which, if you haven't seen it, features all kinds of scary stuff, including suicide and self-harm and all that type of jazz. So if those are sensitive topics for you, first of all, definitely don't watch the movie Event Horizon. And second of all, make an informed choice about whether you want to listen to this podcast episode with that out of the way enjoy this spooky terrifying episode of what are we calling it the greatest horizon hold on i have this written down somewhere the greatest horizon yeah it was it was was just that simple (laughs) the gateway is open and you are all coming with me this place is a tomb Welcome to The Greatest Horizon, a horror podcast where two scared men talk about the 1997 horror classic, Event Horizon. Cult horror classic? I was surprised to learn that this movie was a flop at the box office.
1: Oh, I knew it was a flop at the box office because I worked at a movie theater during this movie's
0: (laughs) run. Wow. Were you scared to operate the
1: projector? That was one of the main reasons this film and like the legend of this film stuck with me was because I was often working the late shift in the projection booth, which means like the last show often is like. Starting between 9 and 10, right? Yeah. And what does that mean? Your movies are ending between 11 and midnight, if you're lucky. Right. And one at a time, the movies will wind down and the projectors will turn off. And what that means is in the projection booth, it gets darker and darker (laughs) and darker (laughs) and darker until there's one projector going. Yeah. And then that one goes out. And then the whole booth area goes dark you can't have lights on up there because you you get the lights bleeding through the projector booth window no yeah and when this movie was playing it doesn't matter whether or not it was a hit like they're all hits to me up in the projection booth
0: (laughs) treat every movie like a hit
1: this was terrifying yeah because like you're checking the screens as you go like you're going screen to screen to check your focus check the sound and often i'm like peeking in on something terrible <laughs> at 11 p.m.
0: alone as a 16-year-old. Yeah. Oh, cool. They went close on the blood orgy playing on the on the little screen there. Yeah. And we can get
1: into this later, but I, I think the audio does a lot of the lifting in this movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when you turn the audio on in an empty and dark projection booth, even for a couple of seconds, it stays with you. And so... This movie stayed with me. The
0: sound design in the movie is pretty intense, I have to say. It's
1: maybe more intense than the visual, but I I mean, this was, whether or not it was a hit, it was in my projection booth for a month. Yeah, yeah. And it was night after night.
0: Was it like the same like shifty guy in a dirty hooded sweatshirt showing up night after night to rewatch?
1: That was another fun part of the job was like, it's sort of like that moment when you go to a college class and the professor doesn't show up after a period of time and you're like, well, wait, after after 15 minutes, everyone knows that the rule is class yeah. is dismissed and you can go about your day. Right. For me as a projectionist, like the previews are done and there's no one in the theater. The movie starts, there's no one in the theater. I had that same running clock in my mind. Like... If I'm into this movie 15 minutes, I'm going to shut it off.
0: (laughs) I don't want to put wear and tear on this reel. It never
1: happened. Someone always showed up. I never had an empty movie house.
0: Man, that's such an interesting metric.
1: I think matinees did. Like the night screenings always had someone, at least one. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, there's always like a couple of spies that need to uh, exchange briefcases or, Uh you know. (laughs) Gangsters that need to meet with the embedded cop that they have inside sure. the uh, major crimes division. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you know all of these things. Yeah. Well, <laughs> my memory of this movie was I my summer job uh, was this a summer release? I was trying to. I looked it up and it's an August release. It was okay. So yeah, so this was my summer job was I worked at the science museum, the Lawrence Hall of Science up in the Berkeley Hills and they had a an exhibit of Kinex, the mm-hmm. knockoff Lego, mm-hmm. like plastic building toy. I guess it's kind of like midpoint between Lego and Erector set.
1: Kinex are their own thing.
0: Yeah, but like- I It's don't... a completely different type of toy. Yeah, there's probably like Kinex nerds that are mad that I called it a knockoff. But... Uh, it's a different company. <laughs> it's a different quality of product. I was like a docent in the exhibit hall. So I would like help kids like take apart.
1: Young docent is a great call sign for you, by the Mm -hmm. way.
0: That was my rap name for a little while too.
1: Youthful docent. Uh Uh-huh. Lil docent.
0: Yeah. And I was like, uh, you know, like there were like college kids that were also working there and they hated me because they hated that there was (laughs) like a 13 year old (laughs) or 14 year old working the same job as them.
1: I don't like that.
0: And yeah, like, and then there were other, like, local teens. And one of them was a boy who I think, in retrospect, was probably, you know, neurodivergent in some way. And I I liked him a lot. And he, he was really funny, but his interests were very strange compared to mine. And like, he would talk about, you know, shows and movies that I had never heard of. And, he was, like, obsessed with Event Horizon when it came out. And, I like, so obsessed that he convinced me to go see it in the theater. Ooh. And I g- grew up Together? not watching... Sk- no. Like, <laughs> like I, I went with a different friend. Uh-huh. But I grew up, like, not watching scary movies because they were too scary for me. Like, yeah. I grew up getting nightmares from seeing an ad for, like, you know, Freddy Krueger movie playing on, you know, Channel 20... This weekend, yeah, for Halloween, yeah, and uh, <laughs> I did not not do well <laughs> watching this movie. It was very scary for me, uh, but I, I do feel like I've seen it more than once. Like I think I rented the DVD of it a couple of times in college. Like it, it's it's a movie I feel like I know pretty well.
1: I feel the same way, except there is such a huge break between my time in the booth watching this dozens of times yeah. collectively and i just took a big long break a decades long break from this film and i when you described it as a cult film and i started looking into it i was really surprised at what a large audience this film has it is a cult yeah. classic in a way totally. that i was not expecting to read about
0: yeah and like i think it's one of those examples of like a movie from the dvd era where the right. dvd did so crazy good that they were like Hey, like this movie kind of made its money back.
1: (laughs) How many of those were from the late
0: 90s? So many. I feel
1: like there's a specific window where, like, the DVD made a film a hit and that film came from 95 to 99.
0: Totally. Well, it's like it's the post Megaplex era where there are 20 screens in many movie theaters in your town. And Mm -hmm. so they need 20 movies or. You know, at least 15, because there's one that they're going to put in three or four theaters, but they need to fill those rooms with butts.
1: Yeah. At least one butt. (laughs) You got to make me push the button that starts the movie. And it takes one butt to do it.
0: But it's like the era of television we're in now. Like, There's so many shows that are like the greatest show on like stars, you know, Mm -hmm. like there's there's a I guarantee you that stars has a show right now that's amazing and that you would love, but you're never going to see it. Until some like medium that enables you to access it emerges, and right, and I think DVDs were sort of that. Like, and and a movie like this is like uniquely well suited to like college dorm room DVD collections and stuff. So that was such a special time. Yeah, the era where you bought
1: DVDs as if they were CDs. You just bought them to have them.
0: Yeah, I totally had the Case Logic big binder of DVDs also.
1: Oh, I never took my DVDs out of the cases. You know what I did? (laughs) I would put movie ticket stubs into the DVDs. (laughs) Because I kept all my movie ticket stubs for the longest time. And then when I got the DVD later, I would slide it in there in the little clip that held the
0: booklet. Do you think that that's, because you went to, college like kind of in the town you grew up in mm-hmm. i went to college across the country so i didn't have like a way to bring like two huge boxes full dvds well you I... gotta
1: stick those ticket stubs in a case logic
0: yeah van. i've never saved ticket stubs either you know i've never saved like backstage passes or like conference badges or anything like that
1: i did a thing just yesterday actually it's interesting you brought it up i'm mm. packing for a move Yeah. And that often includes a lot of downsizing and recycling and donating and stuff. And I had I had like a big old box of stubs. Yeah. And so forth. And I got rid of a lot of that stuff. I mean, if I was gonna do anything with them, I would have by now. So I just sort of held my breath and tipped them (laughs) over into the dumpster. Got rid of them.
0: RSVP those stubs. And RSVP, our ability to sleep tonight, Adam. Do you want to get into this movie?
1: Sure do, Ben. I mean, when this idea was proposed, I was very (laughs) reluctant to do it, mostly because of the legend that this film, like the space in my mind that this occupied was like sacrosanct. I could not argue with its place in my mind that it had earned from my time in the booth, but I was very interested to find out uh, whether or not my recollection matched up with the reality of the 1997 Paul W.S. Anderson film. Event Horizon.
0: I love opening on the, like, Paramount logo with the, like, really cheerful Paramount, you know, orchestral strum.
1: I love using the mountain for action. I I feel like when you saw a Paramount movie and they did something with the mountain, it meant that you were in for something special.
0: Yeah, and this one kind of zooms up past the mountain...
1: Was Mission Impossible the first one to do that?
0: Maybe. There was definitely like a moment when movie th- studios figured out how much fun could be had by color grading their logo or whatever.
1: No one else uses their logo, right? Like 20th Century Fox, you don't do stuff with that, right? Like I can- Oh, sure they do. Really? Yeah, they did,
0: they, they've they done all kinds of weird stuff. I think in um like Futurama, they got to do 30th Century Fox. They've done... Uh, I mean, as a location, like riffing on it
1: is something that happens fairly often, but like oh yeah, as a practical place.
0: Like flying past it and yeah. into a space butthole the way they right. do with the mountain in this. I, yeah, I guess you're right. They haven't done that. So this is a movie that has a very like, it is the 90, 1997 opening credits reel. <laughs> like <laughs> the text zooming into the space butthole.
1: The disappearing credits are cheesy as hell. <laughs> the Orbital soundtrack really puts you in a time and a place also. Oh yeah. <laughs> How many of the CDs in your case logic case that that got lost were Orbital or Prodigy or like Paul Oakenfold or BT or oh, Sasha yeah. and Digweed? Like there was a window of a couple of years where like the techno CD was a big, big part of my life.
0: Yeah. I had a couple of trance CDs, but I don't ever, Mm -hmm. I I guess I had, I probably had a Prodigy CD, Mm -hmm. but I think mostly my electronica was centered on trance. Yeah. So so then we get like the timeline that leads us up to the events of this film, 2015. And I was like, wow, the future.
1: (laughs) It made me disappointed when I saw this timeline. I'm like, We can't even rise to the level of Event Horizon.
0: Yeah, Event Horizon is an optimistic movie about the future. Are you kidding me?
1: (laughs) (laughs) That really started the tone set for me where I started not to feel so nervous and... (laughs) (laughs) preemptively scared about this movie because I really did, like, I watched this late at night alone. My wife is out of town. Like, I was really expecting to be terrified by this, but this beginning started a kind of wry smile that was
0: like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) we can't even do this. Crucially, in 2040, a spaceship called the Event Horizon went missing out beyond Neptune. And in 2047... Uh, The events of this movie are taking place and then we crossfade to a huge space rock hurtling away from the sun and we're like, okay, it's going to hit the earth. Uh The earth is going to be destroyed. No, it just goes past the camera. The space rock is irrelevant to the film. (laughs) Yeah. We
1: don't need any deep core drillers to take care of this problem.
0: That rock, not an issue. Yeah. (laughs) Don't sweat the rock. What we do get is an establishing shot of a beautiful practical model of the event horizon, a huge long ship that's got sort of, it's got sort of a nacelle based design, right? There's sort of a star drive section and a, you know, forward crew section. And then this long neck that connects the two of them.
1: It does look that way, but it's also uh, very intentionally a crucifix image.
0: Interesting. I don't feel like you see it from that angle for the first little while. Yeah.
1: It's not a friendly-looking ship, is it?
0: No. No, it it looks very mean and nasty. It looks very haunted, even from the outside. And uh, we cut to the interior of the central axis, the, the, the corridor that runs down that long neck, and suddenly everything is rendered on PlayStation 2. (laughs) It's like, it's one of the like strangest things about this film is it's right in that era where some CG stuff they're going for and other stuff they are doing practical. And the CG stuff is so corny looking.
1: (laughs) I watched this on the Paramount Plus app. Is that how you watched it?
0: I discontinued my membership in that and just do Paramount Plus through the Apple TV app now.
1: I mean, I imagine we're watching the same version then. There was recently a remastered 4K version that came out of this film. And I'm pretty sure that's the version we both saw on streaming. I, too, was pretty surprised at the fidelity of these visuals, especially here. Yeah. At the time, I remember them being super impressive, like in the Star Trek 6 kind of way where the blood is commingling on screen in a very yeah. impressive way. Like, this is yeah. not the same. I mean, this feels like the same family of effects. Totally. But it is yeah. not the same feeling in reaction.
0: There are some moments that are like genuinely really impressive, but most of the time when they use CG, it's kind of a wah
1: <laughs> I mean, what do they say about <laughs> filmmaking though? Like sound is 80%? of filmmaking or whatever. This is a moment where the sound design carries it. Totally. Because when these things clink together and and zoom past the camera, it sounds amazing.
0: It really does. We go up to the bridge of the event horizon and there's a cut up terrifying body and we zoom in on its eyeball and then wake up with Sam Neill in a clean bedroom where he's surrounded by photographs of a curly-haired lady. He has so many photographs of this lady, many duplicate photographs <laughs> of her. Like when he when he gets up, he pulls one off of the <laughs> binder clip near his bed and puts it in a stack of other photos elsewhere in his room. And it like goes down right next to the identical photograph, but just cropped differently. <laughs>
1: when he pulls down that crew person's photos to demonstrate what bending space looks like, uh-huh. He should know better than to do that to <laughs> someone else's bunk photos, right?
0: Excuse me. Uh, that's Vanessa, and that's mine. <laughs> Seriously.
1: Bunk photos are so precious to a space person.
0: This space station set feels so much like where Sigourney Weaver winds up at the beginning of Aliens. And there's so much in this movie that borrows from Alien and Aliens and, like... All of that imagery is really, it doesn't really feel like they're aping it. They're just kind of like using an established language as shorthand. Like I think yeah. we as filmgoers like really quickly understand what is going on here in a cool way. Adrian Biddle was the
1: cinematographer for Aliens for James Cameron. And I think that's an interesting bit of shared DNA. Oh, yeah. But When I was reading an interview with Paul W.S. Anderson, he was talking about how careful he was not to copy the legacy science fiction films that were legendary of its time like he was very aware of what a whalen yutani universe looks like right. or a star wars or star trek universe looks like and he went in a different direction like according to him the thing that was inspiring to him was religion, Catholic religion specifically. Yeah. And like he based the event horizon on the Notre Dame Cathedral and like his imagery was very specifically about gothic structure.
0: It's so interesting how much imagery in this is gothic and quasi-religious when the dialogue really contains almost nothing about that. Yeah. The, yeah. the movie is is very haunted and spooky in a religious feeling way without being a movie that directly cites a specific religion as its source material and and we that a, a lot of other horror films at this time were doing and i think a lot of horror movies in general like you know though the exorcist is you know an example of a movie that where they're like the priest is <laughs> is yeah. like the main character
1: that's a really interesting observation because i think it holds true for a lot of other aspects of this film like I don't mean superficial as pejorative, but this film makes a lot of decisions that are like just the initial statement without the supporting parts of what could really fill in the supporting architecture for a statement you're trying to make.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, like, that's a criticism a lot of people had of the movie. Like, the depth just isn't there in the same way as, you know, maybe it seemed like they were setting out to, like, I think you do cause people's attention to perk up when you, like, zoom in through the front windshield of the search and rescue spaceship and the pilot has a rosary hanging from, you know, I guess the rear view mirror.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You got to check your blind spots.
0: It's hanging from where a rear view mirror would be if that were a practical thing to have on the Lewis and Clark. But, like, that guy never says anything about, like, his deeply held religious beliefs right
1: (laughs) when dr weir wakes up it reminds me a lot of ripley waking up on her station yeah you know waiting for burke to knock on her door but no one appears to be on daylight station where dr weir is waiting for the lewis and clark to pick him up
0: yeah i almost wondered why they told us what the name of the station was like who gives a shit
1: yeah when we're over on the lewis and clark I mean, these comparisons are hard not to make because Lawrence Fishburne is really aponing around in his orders to the crew.
0: You know the rules, people. Someone drops the ball, we get the call. Now, let's go. Assholes and elbows.
1: Hard not to notice the similarities there.
0: The energy is so aliens. In this opening scene. And like, it's kind of an aliens style. We got to get down and like get in our tubes full of liquid so that we don't get squished when we, we're not going to light speed, but we're, we're burning so many G's that it would liquefy your body if you weren't in this tube.
1: What else are you supposed to do though? Like on the one hand, I'm like. It's not quite a ripoff. You have to get into a chamber to to travel long distances in space. But I like, this is one of those moments where there's actually a foundation to the story because they're like, you not only get into the chamber, the reason is the G-forces.
0: Right, yeah, and uh, you know, it sets in your mind like what's going to cause some G-forces to turn someone into cat food in this movie. Yeah. Claustrophobic. Very.
1: Would you want to be first? Like, let's just say we're all getting ready to do the jump and, like, we're getting into our undress, we're taking the last drag of a cigarette or whatever. Yeah. I don't know if I'd wanna be first or maybe I definitely wanna be first, I don't know. Ooh, it's
0: time to play Spam and the King. I think guy that goes first definitely gets like Sharpie penises drawn on his face. (laughs) Whatever, right?
1: When you're first into the chamber, that is the first person to pass out at a party. You're right, I don't wanna be that person. No, that's not good. Yeah. (laughs) But how does the last person get themselves in? They don't establish that.
0: Oh yeah, like close the door behind you. If you fuck up on yourself, Yikes. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody wakes up and there's just one of the tubes is red. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> or brown.
0: <laughs> yeah. I guess it's 56 days. It would have time to, to rot, right? Yeah. Uh. Um, <laughs> I thought it was nice to see men with their shirts off in a movie that didn't have bodies that put mine to shame. Like, they're in good shape, but they're not like in such unbelievably good shape that, it, you know, you'll never look like that.
1: Yeah. I... I did appreciate seeing Sam Neill with a shirt off looking like, hey, look at that guy.
0: Attainable. All
1: right, Sam Neill. Attainably hunky. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so he wakes up after 56 days and he's the only one to wake up.
1: Yeah. That's because a nightmare does the job, right?
0: Right. And uh, the Lewis and Clark kind of treated as a haunted house already. Yeah. We
1: see nipples in the first 10 minutes of this movie, which I think (laughs) is a quality of late 90s films of a certain kind, right? Totally.
0: Yeah. The horny factor of these nipples, really low, though, because they are on a woman whose eyeballs are not in her head. Right.
1: I'm waiting. Yeah. (laughs) Look, I'm not here to yuck anyone's yum, but uh, (laughs) you and I are very aware that this is for someone.
0: Yeah, I guess, I guess. And I'm
1: reluctant to criticize
0: it. What is that, Rule 37? That uh-huh. like, <laughs> Yeah, so when you see a dirty lady foot in a Quintino movie, you know what that's about. And uh-huh. when you see a lady with her eyes gouged out in a Paul W.S. Anderson movie, you know what that's about.
1: Yeah, you really do. For will <laughs> sake the minute shit, you love it. This is the scene I was mentioning earlier about Sam Neill explaining the concept. And Sam Neill is so good at explaining concepts.
0: He really is.
1: (laughs) I feel like he definitely didn't have to read for this movie because the scene where he explains to a kid what a velociraptor does is how you get cast as Dr. Weir in this film because...
0: If you need, like, an amazing linebacker for your football team, you look at the game tape, you see who can play, and you make an offer, and this guy had game tape for the Here's How folding space works scene try to show a little respect
1: okay i love how much room he's given in this scene to just do this like you know this is what he's best at you just give sam neil a scene to do this <laughs> and i am transfixed by him throughout this 90 seconds he is just amazing at this
0: it's so great. Um, so he's he plays Dr. Weir, who is on this mission, not as one of these search and rescue people. These search and rescue people are kind of styled as like quasi-military, maybe more akin to like EMS or something like that, but mm-hmm. they're very annoyed that they have been given this job because A, it's really, really far away from where humanity hangs out. And this is a type of search and rescue operation that does not have a great track record of success. And B, they've been pulled off of a well-deserved break. This is time that they're not going to get back. So they're irritated to have been given an emergency scramble. Skip, up. I got a question. Sure. What the fuck are we doing way out of here? Oh, well, perhaps the good doctor will be kind enough to tell us. He's here to explain that and is like not ultra sensitive to the fact that they uh, are being wildly inconvenienced by this and put at risk by this.
1: This felt so much like being a contract video producer in an environment where the people you need to help you don't have to and don't want to. Yeah, like, yeah. Like I've been in situations like this where like, all right guys, we're here to make a safety video Thank you for helping me out. And they're like, no one wanted to do this. (laughs) That's the energy. And to Dr. Weir's credit, he does not assume that he has their allegiance or support in any way. I think he kind of understands that he's running the show right from jump.
0: Yeah, he's um, in an interesting position because it's his show, but it's not his ship. And so... Lawrence Fishburne can really pull captain energy when he needs to. And Mm -hmm. uh, he does in the scene, you know, he's like, hey, like these guys are pissed. So, you know, (laughs) you might wanna be a little bit more diplomatic as you explain this. And he drops the EH bomb. USAC intercepted a radio transmission from a decaying orbit around Neptune. The source of this transmission has been identified as the Event Horizon. (laughs)
1: Yeah, well,
0: that's bullshit. Stop. And they're all, like, even more pissed now because everybody knows that the Event Horizon disappeared seven years ago, worst disaster in space history, but it exploded, exploded out by by Neptune. Uh, There's nothing to search or rescue. It's all parts. I feel like if Tony Scott had directed this movie, it would have
1: started with the newsreel about the disappearance of the Event Horizon Mm -hmm. And that's what would have got you into this timeline. Like there are a couple of ways to do this, to drop a viewer into the story and timeline of this. Right. But I really like the choice that this film makes in that you don't see it. It's just the reactions to the idea about it. Yeah. And this movie is so much about people's reactions to things.
0: It's so efficient in making that feel real. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, like the like the whole crew is pissed.
1: But you don't know why. Like like I it's not like there's a scroll buried under where the World Trade Center is. And by looking around at the reacts to that you understand like the different permutations of grief or whatever. The reacts from this crew are impenetrable. Like I can't tell if the reaction is because this was a horrifying incident in the history of space travel and as space travelers, you can't help but feel, you know, a kinship to the to the crew people lost or if something else is in play here. I like the mystery of it.
0: I do too. The Event Horizon's actual story was a cover-up and the mission was going well and it did this space folding thing and then they lost contact and that's why nobody knows what happened to it. So... Hey, can I just say great,
1: Restraint from Dr. Weir, you know, when he's like folding up the centerfold picture. Mm-hmm. Not not to poke a penhole in in like a mouth and a nipple <laughs> in yeah. describing like how you <laughs>
0: Yeah, he didn't go boob to boob. He didn't he didn't go you know. ass to mouth. No. I mean, you're not supposed to go ass to mouth, right? <laughs> you can get in a lot of trouble.
1: Yeah, exactly. Ooh, is that an
0: alpha? They also have a recording from that like got broadcast back from the event horizon and he plays that for the crew. Why
1: does he do this?
0: I don't know. I don't know why he did it. And I B don't know why they changed venues. Like they leave the lunchroom (laughs) and go to like some sort of cargo bay so that he can play them some audio. Maybe the acoustics are better in there or something. He's like a standup who's getting killed and he's like, all right, well, if I've already
1: lost them, why don't I play the Liberate May Audio recording <laughs>
0: like, yeah, at that point, what's the difference?: I'd say that uh, we've spent a lot of time talking about how intense the sound design is on this movie. Yeah. I think one place the sound design fails is how much this just sounds like a Halloween sound effects tape that you play outside your house <laughs> you know in a boombox that you hide behind a skull. The fucking hell is that? This
1: is a question of consistency right? Because, well, the sound design is so good in some places, for them to be disappointing here makes it tough.
0: Yeah. And that like, nobody goes like, why do you, like, it really sounds like a lot of people are screaming and moaning and gnashing teeth. What do you think that's about? Yeah. You know, nobody, like they translate the Latin, the two like hard to tell apart British guys translate the Latin, but nobody else brings up anything.
1: (laughs) Dude, (laughs) I was going to say that too like has anyone seen Jason Isaacs and Sean Pertwee in the same room at the same time
0: <laughs> I mean aside from this movie no and I would say that the special effects quality of this movie lead me to believe that they are in fact two different men, uh-huh. <laughs> not one man playing two different parts.
1: I love Jason Isaacs in this movie. He is not given a ton to do, but he is twelve out of ten in terms yeah. of what he's bringing to the role.
0: He really is. Yeah, I was I was surprised at how late in the credit sequence his name pops up. Yeah, you know, just given like what a star he is now, but. um Yeah, I guess this is early in his career.
1: He was at the Star Trek Discovery premiere that I went to with friend of the show, Ben Fritz. Oh, yeah. And he was just hanging out like with one or two other people, and he was like 10 feet away from me, and I just couldn't approach him to say what's up. (laughs) And I wanted to so bad because he's been in so many things that I really love, this being one of them. But like, if I ever get the chance to chat him up again, I'm definitely going to ask about Event Horizon.
0: Yeah, yeah. So... I'm not really sure why it's so scary when they pull up to the ship, but it's very scary for a little while. (laughs) Like, I guess they're, like, descending into the clouds of Neptune or something, and, like, they can't see it, but, like, you wouldn't, you would be flying on instruments, too, right? Like, (laughs) yeah, you wouldn't just be like. And they are. (laughs) They are, but, like, they also don't fire retro thrusters until they can actually see the ship, and they very nearly bonk right into it. For the last seven years though.
1: That's what we're here to find out. There's something so consistently nice and neat about Federation Starship lighting. Yeah. And especially the lighting of the ship's name and the registry. Right. Event Horizon chooses a different direction. Like yeah. it is like <laughs> six old light bulbs. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's very much like uh if a starship chose a lighting scheme inspired by putting a flashlight under your chin to tell a ghost story, that's how the Event Horizon lights its name up on its bow.
1: If all you saw was the name Event Horizon, the way it's lit on this ship, you'd think they were selling Christmas trees below <laughs> the name of the ship, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, these guys came down from Canada with yeah. a... Rented van full of trees. You
1: know, it's a family business.
0: (laughs) Yeah, they do this every year. Yeah. (laughs) They start scanning for life forms. And this is something I love when they do in movies, is when they scan for life forms. Yeah, it's your favorite part, right? Where are you? But they're getting weird readings. The readings are like generalized everywhere. There's no like, oh, here's where the people are hiding, you know, signal. So they kind of do a fly around and they find the main airlock, which is right on that neck part, the the long corridor Mm -hmm. in the middle of the ship. They uh, reach out and grab onto the ship and connect. And uh, it's time to start walking around the haunted house in space. Okay, we do it the hard way, deck by deck, room by room. The
1: seventh most important thing you can do on a mission like this is turn on the lights. (laughs) You wanna do everything else first on a mission like this.
0: Yeah, that's a pretty long way down the checklist.
1: (laughs) It is so creepy. I think the scope of the ship is part of what makes it so disturbing to be over there, right? You're approaching on the Lewis and Clark. It's a ship of a kind of scale you can understand for its crew complement, but like when you see the Lewis and Clark next to the event horizon, it looks creepy and big. And then when you're these six little people on the neck of this thing, it just looks enormous. Yeah.
0: I really did like the special effects when they first board and he like waves his flashlight through all the crap that's floating in the air, and it like scatters the light in the smoke that was really cool
1: i mean it's another great scene of audio success you know totally atmospherically it it feels amazing and and we're shooting this wide too right
0: places a deep freeze
1: really getting a sense of the space and all the things floating inside
0: we got ice crystals everywhere it looks great and we learned that the thing about the front of the ship being where the crew goes and the back being the the gravity drive section and uh we also learn that they put explosives in place along the neck to separate the two in case of emergency, like the crew could go home on a conventional starship and leave the gravity drive behind if they needed to. I love how over-engineered this part of it is. Like, There's so
1: many bombs. <laughs> like you could get away with like a ring-shaped configuration of like four of these bombs to separate mm-hmm the two halves of the ship. Yeah. The entire neck is meant to explode.
0: Yeah, the, every section of the neck is meant to explode. So they split up pretty quickly and people start going off in different directions. We see the medical bay, which looks a lot more like an abattoir than a place that you would get uh, yeah. <laughs> fixed up by a doctor.
1: Yeah, it definitely looks like a facility meant for after death scenarios. <laughs> <laughs> preparations for funerals and cremations. yeah. look, if you're going to a medical facility and there's a lot of drains and tables,
0: yeah, and a lot of like uh, like loose saws on <laughs> tables,
1: I might go see where else my health insurance could take me <laughs> at that point.:
0: They're scanning more carefully for life forms in here and don't find anything at them and uh an immortal line is uttered. yeah. This place is a tomb one of the
1: lines of this movie.
0: <laughs> right before a loose glove creeps up behind Lawrence Fishburne and gives us one of our jump scares of the film.
1: Oh, fuck me!
0: It was just a glove oh. floating around. It wasn't a person reaching out and touching him. Looks like Skipper guy, the case of the windies.
1: You didn't think that was a hand? I thought it was a severed hand that had
0: just been exposed to space. Why would they not comment on it being a severed hand? There are no bodies anywhere.
1: There are a lot of strange things that they don't comment on in this movie.
0: (laughs) Okay, fair. Fair enough. <laughs> like,
1: not to cut too far into later, but like the part of the bridge that's just covered in frozen blood. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Nobody ever says anything. About like it. <laughs> it is
1: center frame basically. Yeah, no one yeah. regards it.
0: Yeah, it's it's so funny. <laughs> it's, <laughs> there's like a little blood on one console, and she yeah. says, "We've got some blood here." Yeah, and like the next shot is of like skulls and tibias like (laughs) gooped against a wall (laughs) with frozen blood and nobody ever says anything about that. Yeah, yeah.
1: It's important that we retrieve the logs from the ship, Ben, and it's a good thing that they're on CD. (laughs) Yeah,
0: that's a format that's never gonna go away, Like a
1: stack of Blaupunkt CD players. (laughs) It's big fun.
0: Yeah, so one team goes to the bridge Another,
1: yeah, you got to split up because what do we know about this ship? Bridge up front, engineering in the rear,
0: yeah. And uh, unfortunately, they send Justin to engineering and they send Justin alone, and he goes back there. And you know, the first thing you see is this like long tunnel where it's like a rotating light effect. And I feel like I went to like science museums as a kid where they had a thing like this that you could walk down, and it always made you you know, sick to your stomach and want to fall over because yeah, your, yeah. your eyes are telling your brain things that, you know, don't agree with gravity.
1: Right. And this Jack Noseworthy actor is a real that guy. Like, he's been in a lot of things as a type of character that you feel for like they call him the baby bear of this crew. And I think that's just cause he he's got that youthful
0: appearance. I want to introduce you to the newest bear in our bear pack. Yeah, he really does. And, uh, we see the, um, drive has like an active computer and he starts like messing around with it and we go back up to the bridge and uh we also find out that there is one body that didn't get turned into cat food in whatever happened to the event horizon <laughs> it's just like floating loose in the bridge i don't know how they didn't see it before
1: yeah i mean this is a callback to one of the first scenes in this movie the guy just sort of doing somersaults in the bridge <laughs> as a vision corpsicle. <laughs> When Baby Bear is messing around in the engineering section, these rings line up and a very black pool of liquid appears in the middle that he can't help but kind of touch with a gloved finger. And you just don't want him to do that. Never touch the black goo. (laughs) I mean, he touches it and he gets away with it and then he does that dip the whole hand in and he just got too
0: curious. Yeah, when he dips the whole hand in, the whole hymn goes in and uh, you know, they, they're all on tethers, which mm-hmm. I didn't realize until he went in. Yeah. But there's like a, you know, helicopter winch to, to pull him back to the ship that breaks immediately. Yeah. Those things always break immediately. Like when has one of those ever been successful in pulling someone back in a movie?
1: The speed of the pull is nauseating. And it's one of the things that makes this scene so effective. Like. The contrast between how slowly he presses his glove in and how quickly his body is sucked in afterwards is shocking.
0: Yeah, and uh, Cooper, one of the other dudes on the the crew, is uh, off to rescue him and is uh, making his way as quickly as he possibly can to the uh, black sphere inside the gravity drive. As he's on his way there, the, the drive like pulses and it like blows all the floating liquid and um, we get our first big banger of the film. And, uh, you know, like this is a Paramount film. You know what a banger looks like when it hits a starship in a right. Paramount production, but you don't know Jack, baby. Like there are so many more sparks in this than we've ever seen in a Star Trek film. Like the explosions are like so danger close to the actors some of these explosive near actors shots are absolutely terrifying and they do some really great slow-mo stuff. And, uh, the image we get is that the Lewis and Clark took a really bad hit from whatever just happened. And, uh, you can't even really process the dialogue that they're yelling at each other on the Lewis and Clark, like Sam Neill and Sean Pertwee and, you know, I guess uh, Stark, the one of the two women on the crew, are like screaming stuff at each other and Cooper's trying to rescue Baby Bear and it's just like a total chaos. But uh, pretty soon you realize that they're going to have to abandon their own ship and take refuge in the event horizon.
1: This is the tension that we enjoy in submarine films and in war films. When order turns into chaos, you're made to feel the terror so much more acutely, right? Because this is a situation where order would ordinarily be upheld utterly, right?
0: Yeah. And instead, like, all of the devices that are there to keep them alive are, like, failing and exploding (laughs) and become threats to their survival, so.
1: Let me ask you a question. I think you could make the case that you could construct the film with the special effect in mind first and the ship design after that Mm -hmm. because how much work does the design of the ship do in making the shockwave really scary you need the length right you need the length and you specifically need to shoot parallel down the length of the ship in order to get the effect coming at the camera if this ship Is shorter if it has a longer neck or no neck at all, I don't think this hits as hard. So I wonder when you're constructing the story and the idea of this ship, how much you need to work those two concepts together to make a moment like this work even better than it could.
0: Yeah, there's so much about like the design of this movie that's really impressive in retrospect. Yeah. Very impressive ship, Doctor. I don't think that the Nostromo quite has that, right? Like, there's nothing about the Nostromo that, like, particularly affects the way you experience a shot. Like, there's rooms on the Nostromo that do, but, like, I don't really feel like I understand the layout of the Nostromo the way I do of the Event Horizon.
1: Same, but I think that's, like, part of what works with the Aliens films is. Not being able to orient yourself within a ship right. whose corridors look very similar, no matter where you go, you know. True,
0: yeah, that's fair. Like, I, I guess they're they're trying for two different things and taking different approaches yeah. because of that. So,
1: yeah, I mean, there's there's horror in everything looking the same, like a maze, and there's right. horror in knowing exactly what your orientation is on a ship
0: and knowing that there's no way out. Yeah, that's the core of gravity drive this whole sequence happens really quickly like they recover baby bear's body everybody takes refuge on the event horizon and then like whoever's up on the bridge i guess that's peters turns on the uh, the gravity and like all of the stuff that's floating all over the ship all the like miscellaneous trash in the in the corridor all the all the liquid in the core and the frozen dead body on the bridge all just come crashing to the ground yeah. And some of these effects are really cool. Like the liquid coolant stuff that's floating around in the core doesn't look that great when it's CG, but the transition from CG to actual liquid getting dumped is perfect. Yeah.
1: The coloration of it is great too. It's not quite black. Yeah. It's kind of like oil change oil.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like your, your engine's running a little dirty oil. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's a really great choice.
0: And we finally get a quiet moment after like a kind of long frenetic sequence
1: it's a moment where they argue about what happens to baby bear right
0: yeah they're pretty fucked like they're they have 20 hours of air so they've got a figure out what is going to happen to baby bear problem but they also have a figure out how do we get home problem yeah because they were sent out here to search and rescue and uh, there's nobody to rescue so Now it's just a like our ship is fucked up and we need to get home somehow problem. It's an interesting
1: scene of like Cooper telling everyone what he saw and we're not believing him and Lawrence Fishburne's character having to decide what actually happened or who has more credibility in this moment. He has a lot of allegiance toward Cooper as his crew person. Yeah. But Weir, as the subject matter expert, also carries a lot of weight in this scene. It's tough, and Cooper's really in the middle. Cooper's pissed. An
0: optical effect that's fucking. Cool. Where, where the fuck, Cooper? And in a really understandable way, like the I just had like a crazy experience, and I'm being second guessed and told I didn't. Yeah. Is a terrible feeling. There's some like interesting. Racial politics elements to this movie too And I I think crucially Cooper and Miller are black And Miller defends Cooper Very fervently When Weir is like Dismissing his you know Lived experience as just like a Privileged asshole
1: Yeah I mean it sucks When you're saying you Saw a thing and it's not just That it's scientifically impossible But when you're being accused Of hallucinating it Right or being like mentally unwell, that just really sets Cooper off even more. Yeah. Can't do that.
0: It sucks. And Baby Bear is like alive, but not cognizant. His eyes are open, but like, you know, you wave your hand in front of him and he doesn't wake up.
1: One of the characters we haven't talked too much about is Peters. And she is the one who at first is working in the Six Bay area with Baby Bear and she is the crew person who kind of gets the first vision aboard the event horizon.
0: Yeah. Played by the great Kathleen Quinlan, who yeah. I feel like is one of the many prestige actors in this film. Like,
1: <laughs> She does that thing in this movie where her eyes are just always, like not about to cry wet, but like halfway there.
0: Yeah. yeah. She's
1: really amazing.
0: I think that that's like a big part of why this movie is a cult classic, is like...
1: The cast is stacked. The cast is fucking crazy good. Yeah. The vision she sees is of her kid, and this is someone that she's mentioned earlier as someone that she's sharing custody of, and that like her axe to grind about being on this mission is that she's being taken away from his care during a holiday season, and that's kind of a bummer for her and her somewhat estranged husband or or father of the son right at this point it's it's a little unclear and it doesn't really matter in the scope of the story, but what does matter is the vision of this kid that she sees
0: uh, I hated this part so much.
1: The sound design also is like one of the reasons why this is so uncomfortable,
0: yeah. It reminded me a little bit of the Dr. Crusher in the, like, makeshift morgue scene. Great call. uh, TNG, because there's suddenly, like, some kind of tent over one of the bio beds in the medical bay, and there's, like, a hand touching the inside of it. She pulls it away, and it's her son. And then, like, the camera pans down, and his legs are covered in, like, horrible, horrible gashes. If this doesn't
1: disturb you, we go right from this scene into, hey guys, we found the final log entry of the Event Horizon on one of these CDs. Yeah,
0: Who wants to watch? If you enjoyed that episode of Voyager where they showed some horrific imagery and thought it didn't go far enough, check this out.
1: I think it is so important to see this crew alive, which we do a bunch. The pride of mission before shoving off. <laughs> totally. We meet the crew in this scene, but I thought it was such an interesting choice that we don't ID the corpseicle based on this. Like no one IDs any of the bodies on event horizon that they encounter.
0: Yeah, it's it, like nobody goes over to that wall that's covered in goo and yeah. you know sees if they could like match a dental record to one of the skulls that's embedded in the computers. <laughs>
1: Does that just deviate us off of the path a little too much? I got to believe that they thought about that and they were, they ultimately landed on this isn't scary enough. Like,
0: let's keep us on the path. Yeah, this is a waste of time when we could be freaking people out and giving Ben Harrison nightmares. Right. (laughs) So like, they've just finished this and like the footage goes to a, you know, a scramble and, like, one scene previous, Lawrence Fishburne, like, made a big deal about nobody's allowed to go back to the core. And then the power starts draining. And so, like, they all run back to the core. Yeah. And uh, they open up this panel. And inside are, like, green computer chips. And Sam Neill crawls, like, down a tunnel of computer chips to try and fix whatever is causing the power drain. It's a great set. <laughs> it's really good. It, it it has some, like, HAL 9000 vibes to it, I thought. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like like where this movie pays homage to the sci-fi that came before it it's it's like tasteful and clever about how it does it. This rack
1: focus here was so important to me as an independent filmmaker like the rack focuses like these that you got in big movies. Like when you could pull one of these off.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah, the dolly zoom.
1: Yeah. I love these moments so much.
0: Yeah. So at this point, I think Lawrence Fishburne has seen the guy covered in fire. Sam Neill has now again seen Claire, the lady he has lots of pictures of all over his apartment. <laughs> and so, like they get back together, and like th- so they're comparing notes. Like, oh yeah, I saw my son with gashes on his legs. Uh, Lawrence Fishburne saw covered in flames guy. And they're like, so so something is like causing us to have these experiences. Like something's happening to all of us but Sam Neill is very dismissive. Cooper doesn't
1: have this moment though, right? Like I think crucially, not everyone is going through this. And so that creates the argument about whether or not this is real.
0: Yeah. Yeah, but it would also be like super annoying if nobody was talking about any of this to each other, which I feel like some worse scripts have tried to stretch out for longer. Very true. But uh, the like dismissive energy that Sam Neill is bringing to this Pisses the Sean Pertwee character off so much. Yeah. This shit is fucked. Well, thank you for that scientific analysis, Mr. Smith. Yeah, we don't need fuck I you know, okay, to figure that okay, out, okay. Do you? And like it turns into a fight. And then Jason Isaacs, like, gets a scalpel to Sean Pertwee's neck. And everybody's like, whoa, dude. Like, <laughs> that's your buddy. Like, that's you, basically. What are you doing?
1: Jason Isaacs is like wearing a vest that says EMT the entire movie. like. <laughs> and what's so funny about this scene is that he drops the scalpel at the end in a wordless, I don't know what I was doing, I don't know what I was thinking kind of way. Yeah. And later on is approached by Peters specifically as a medical professional that can be... <laughs> that can be <laughs> seeked out as, as a person to help. Like no one treats dj any differently after this yeah in a weird way in a two-hour movie i think you do
0: i like his performance like he is like standing in the background like clearly like reeling at his own actions like what did i just do yeah but yeah like (laughs) you would think somebody would follow up on this right no mistakes. mistakes mistakes nobody goes home understood Stark has a theory that she voices to Miller at this point, and uh, her theory is that the ship has come in some way that they can't understand alive and is reacting to their presence. Like, the things that are happening to them are some sort of, like, it almost sounds like a immune response. Yeah. And she sort of gets laughed at, but then... Baby Bear suddenly is no longer in Six Bay, and uh, this becomes an emergency because he's wandered down to an airlock at him.
1: The start character you mentioned is played by Jolie Richardson, who I was not familiar with from her many period piece films. I was familiar with her from Nip Tuck. Oh, I never watched that. But there is a very specific moment in time where the Jolie Richardson... Joan Allen, like blonde with crimped hair, (laughs) professional actor playing a professional character, type of person was on screen, and I just I found them so attractive, like all of them. (laughs) Like there was something about these these short blondes with crimped hair.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Putting up with a bunch of fucking guff yeah. that I just fell for every time. And Jolie Richardson is an actor like Jason Isaacs who would go on to do bigger and better things and carry entire halves or holes of films on their own right. and is given like a dozen pages of this movie in a shocking way.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. Both she and Kathleen Quinlan are, are very beautiful in this movie, but are not objectified in this movie. Like this yeah. movie never takes a turn of like punishing horny teens like Cabin in the Woods trope. Yeah. Like it, it's not that kind of horror movie. Mm-hmm. And there's there's no space for anyone to be like getting steamy with it. And, and I appreciated <laughs> that about that. Like both of the female leads like have interesting, complex relationships with other people in the crew. And it, nothing about it is about romantic opportunities they represent.
1: It's a horror film, so you're gonna see boobs. Yeah. But the sexualization of some characters never happens.
0: Yeah. They've got to get Baby Bear out of this goddamn airlock. And Lawrence Fishburne has been like helping the crew that's trying to patch the Lewis and Clark back up, like exterior in a in an EVA suit. And so he like races down the length of the ship and gets in position Uh, ahead of where the airlock is gonna open so that he can catch Baby Bear when he comes out. And meanwhile, like on the inside, they're like begging Baby Bear not to go through with it. And he's like saying all this stuff about like the darkness inside him and like he can't go back. How disappointed were
1: you that the inner door button was right next to the outer door button in this airlock? I think that's a real (laughs) failure of UI.
0: Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of that um, Far Side comic strip where the guy's like reaching on his airplane seat and accidentally fumbling for the wings fall off, yeah. wings stay on switch. Yeah,
1: it's so great. <laughs> the construction of this part of the ship and how it functions, I think, goes such a long way in raising the tension of this moment because it's not just an airlock where you're hitting buttons and doors are opening up because. Once Baby Bear hits the button to open the outer door, what that means is that you can't open the inner door without blowing all the air out of the event horizon. So they're stuck. They're stuck at the window watching this happen. And the countdown sequence is like a minute long. And it's it does everything in raising the tension of this scene.
0: Yeah. and. Once he hits that button, he suddenly is back to himself and is like, get me the fuck out of here. And they're like, we can't, there's nothing we can do. And so the, you know, the air starts leaving the chamber and his eyes explode and like blood starts splattering everywhere. And then the door opens and Lawrence Fisburne has to like catch him and bring him right back into that same airlock to save him. But, uh, in all this excitement, and they and and you know, like they're administering trauma medicine to him the second he's back on board, but uh, crucially, they've left Sam Neil alone.
1: What do you make of Baby Bear changing his attitude into one of a person needing help instead of being resolute in his interest in ending his life? Because horror films teach you what the rules of the film are fairly early on. And this is a moment where I really questioned what was happening because I think there's a version of this film where the ship is alive and it kind of puppet masters everyone in the film and either chooses to inhabit their characters or not. This is the only moment in the film where if the ship is alive and if the ship does have the power to inhabit the characters it chooses to both be in them and then release them to release the personality back into their body. It's the only example of that in the entire film, and it confused me. It made me wonder if the ship was there the whole time and instead just fucking with the witnesses to this thing in order to make this moment more horrifying.
0: Well, it's also complicated by the fact that the... like. Immediate aftermath of this scene is cutting away to Sam Neil on the bridge and then like back and forth between him having a freak out and the gravity core spinning around. And um, I don't know the answer to that. I think both are interesting and like we don't really like follow up with what happened to Justin.
1: I mean, we never do, which it's one of the frustrations of the film is like as people say that the ship is alive, I'm not sure I believe that.
0: Well, he's in the he's in the tube for the rest of the movie, so yeah. there's like it kind of sets up a a potential sequel. Like if he is possessed or something, yeah. Then when they get rescued, like they're taking the alien xenomorph eggs back to Earth, kind of a thing.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: So they stop the bleeding. They're still running out of time, air wise, and this is really starting to get to Miller, the Lawrence Fishburne character. So he goes and like you know, puts the wood to Sam Neil, and he's like, can you fucking explain what's going on? Like why my ship is fucked up? Like why my crew is going crazy? What's going on with that drive? Like what's inside of it? And he's really dissembling and like refusing to speculate. I don't know. I don't know is not good enough, doctor. You're supposed to be the fucking expert. I need answers. That's your job. Now the other place. Where is that? Don't know. I don't know. This
1: performance is so great. Did you watch Sam Neill's hands for a lot of this movie?
0: Yeah. Like He's a great they, hands actor.
1: They shoot him in cowboy shots most of the time, and there's like so much weird physicality to him throughout the film where he's obviously like struggling to figure out Like so much of this film, I really wonder if the weird character is holding back or if he really doesn't know or if he's defending the ship right from jump or if he's not. And instead just trying to defend his reputation, like professional reputation shit is (laughs) like fifth on the list of what might be motivating the weird character. I know. (laughs) (laughs) in a really weird way. I feel like a modern film would make that a big, big part of why he acts the way he does.
0: Yeah. He seems weirdly ungoverned by like politics or regret or like he doesn't come on this mission because he's like, we've got to get the crew of the Event Horizon back. Like he doesn't have like state any particular interest in being there. He's just like, oh yeah, I built the ship. So that's why I'm here. Like- it's so interesting. But I don't really like, give a shit one way or the other. Yeah, it's like is like the unsaid second half of that.
1: His celebrity is associated with Event Horizon. It's not that he's the character from Jurassic Park where he is like a famous paleontologist right. brought to the scene. <laughs> right. No one knows this guy. Yeah, he could be lying for all they know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's what makes things so uncomfortable with him. That's part of it, anyway.
0: Yeah. I just realized we we skipped past the part where they're on the bridge and that there's like banging on the door and like claw marks coming from the other side.
1: Yeah, and and Weir gets up. Weir for some reason sits in the captain's chair a bunch. Weir's like, "Open that door." <laughs> I think we should be suspicious of Weir for how often he tries to sit in the big chair.
0: Yeah, yeah. And like never leave Weir unattended after he advocates opening the big door yeah. when the claw marks are happening. Yeah, I just didn't want to leave that part uncommented. On.
1: <laughs> no, that's fair. Yeah. So after they put Justin's body in the liquid chamber, we get a little scene where Miller tells DJ about the vision that he's seen, and this—I <laughs> love how this is a horror measuring contest here because Miller tells the story that all submarine crew people have told right. other people about having to seal someone behind a compartment. And the Jason Isaacs character is like, well, I got something better. (laughs) (laughs) And I've decoded the audio transmission from earlier. And it's so much more scary than any of us imagined.
0: The Jason Isaacs character doesn't get a lot to do, but I think this scene is really, really crucial. And I think you need a Jason Isaacs caliber actor to deliver this liberate tuteme ex inferis line because it is it would be so silly in so many actors mouths and he can get to the place where he's like giving it gravitas while slightly embarrassed that he messed up the latin translation earlier Mm -hmm. while undergirding it with the like we should be very afraid of the ship that we are sitting in right now energy, like it's it's all in it.
1: I love that they give him the knowledge too. It's not like, oh, that sounds like Latin. Who's got the Latin textbook? Let's look it up. And then they <laughs> they incidentally are able to decode it. Like the DJ character is a learned man. He's a smart person, which yeah. is why what when he gets scared, we get scared because he's smart enough to know the difference between haunted house bullshit and something real.
0: And when the smartest guy says, this ship basically went to hell and came back. Yeah. <laughs> like, that could break the movie. This, this scene could rip the movie in half and-
1: It's an inflection point for sure.
0: It's obviously like a pretty silly movie, but like the horror stuff could like stop working after this moment right. if this scene doesn't work. Yeah. And it works. Save yourself
1: There's a moment of levity. It's so weird, like where this film decides to put those moments. I know. Cooper basically carries all of them because there's yeah. a moment on the Lewis and Clark where, where we witness the miracle of adhesives. <laughs> the, uh, the claw marks in the hall have been patched uh, almost all the way. There needs to be a little bit of tidying up that Cooper can do no problem. But like Lewis and Clark's going to be okay. And it's a good thing too, because no one wants to be on the event horizon any longer than they have to be.
0: They really don't. Uh, so they start repressurizing.
1: You can't live in that good feeling too
0: long though, right? No. You (laughs) need to
1: watch the most horrifying part of the entire film right now. Off the end of that.
0: Yeah. The, uh, the two, uh, ladies are up on the bridge and they finally descrambled the end of the captain's log tape. And, uh, they're they're you know standing looking at it, and the camera's kind of like lower than the console, so you can't see what's on the screen. But they both just start going, hey, <laughs> hey Miller, you got to get up and see. It. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, they should be doing that anyway because there's a slowly warming twenty feet of thawed out blood and viscera.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's really starting to smell in there.
1: Like the way the scene is framed, it's like the both of them are are framed left and right. And then the middle is like frozen blood cobwebs. <laughs> yeah.
0: So we do see some of this footage. We see the, the Liberate Tutte Me Ex Inferis moment where the guy delivering the line has ripped his eyeballs out and is holding them at arm's length in, in each of his palms. It's really fucking disgusting. We're leaving. I don't know if you read the Wikipedia article about this movie, but there was a a line in there about how, yeah, like Paul W.S. Anderson was really busy when they shot some of this stuff. So a second unit director wound up having to shoot most of it.
1: <laughs> That's so interesting because like the 25th anniversary of this film really focused a lot of attention back on it. And an interview I read with Paul W.S. Anderson was like, he was taking credit for a lot of that second unit stuff. Wow. Interesting. Well, And you could imagine how the dailies went over at Paramount <laughs> no in this kidding. area. Like it was shocking.
0: They hired porn performers. They hired people who had had limbs amputated mm-hmm. so that they could, you know, get some of the effect. It's so interesting that they went to that level of detail in creating these images that, whiz by like it's walking such a fine line because like any more and this movie probably gets an NC-17 right like
1: I mean there's crucifixion visuals here too yeah to weave the the religious visuals through this moment I mean we talk about this in some of the Star Trek programming that we talk about and in the war movies that we've reviewed before like you get so much value for really caring about the little stuff, and there might be 50 different setups in these quick cut montages and Event Horizon total, yeah. but you get value for every half a second.
0: It's like a full week of shooting.
1: Yeah. But if any one of those is stupid, yeah. it breaks the spell of the thing.
0: Totally. And instead, like it is like some of the sickest shit I've ever seen, not on rotten dot com
1: yeah, I mean, when you frame by frame this stuff, it is not something I recommend doing. It is <laughs> extremely hardcore,
0: yeah, it's fucked up. I did not frame by frame- I just it.
1: blasted over and over and over again. <laughs>
0: you am become man in dirty hooded sweatshirt that only comes for the late show of Event Horizon and is the only person in the theater.
1: (laughs) So much of this film is about like scene A and scene B and the contrast between them, right? Because we see this captain's log and we see how horrifying it is. And then we cut almost directly to Dr. Weir being told that they're aborting the mission. And Dr. Weir taking great umbrage with this and when you put those two scenes back to back, you're like, oh, <laughs> how wrong could Dr. Weir be?
0: The log was so awful. Did you just see that, <laughs> man? <laughs> this turns into a walk and talk and they're like marching down the corridor and Weir's like, you can't just leave. Like, this is like... Yeah, this is very important to me. We we need to save this ship. And one of the other great lines is that Lawrence Fishburne gets in this movie is, just, is he's like explaining that they're basically going to do the nuke it from orbit yeah. plan. Yeah, I will take the Lewis and Clark to a safe distance, and then I will launch tack missiles at the event horizon until I'm satisfied she's vaporized. Fuck this ship. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I love it so much. <laughs> Lawrence Fishburne is great in this movie.
0: Yeah. Sam Neill convinced that leaving is not a possibility, like full stop, that the ship is not going to let them go.
1: And uses the light of the scene in such a beautiful way, how he backs off of camera into the dark
0: <laughs> is
1: so elegant and like horrifyingly beautiful, that, that moment.
0: You just get your gear and get back on the Lewis and Clark doctor or you'll find yourself walking home. I am home. Because they're like, where is he going? Like, what's he going to do? Well, like... Yeah. Ugh.
1: It's great. It gives me chills to even talk about. Sam Neill, here's a question I'm going to ask right here. Did Sam Neill ruin his career by taking this movie? Because he was on a trajectory, I would argue, a Tom Hanks-like trajectory of being like, of playing the roles of trustworthy dad-like professionals. yeah where all of a sudden he's gouging his eyes out in event horizon. And I don't think the roles that he was considered for were ever the same after this.
0: Yeah. I mean, you don't see him that much after this for sure, but I don't
1: criticize the choice because all of the, like many of these actors are like took the roles because it was interesting and different. And I, I want to be encouraging of actors who, who make those choices. I want, more acting against type. I think it's sad if that were were the consequence of this.
0: Yeah, but this is still the era of movie jail where if a movie that is supposed to open huge doesn't You think it's the movie's fault, not the it, parts' fault? It can get blamed on the act the lead actors and the and the yeah. director in a way where like, you know, nobody will take a risk on doing that again. Yeah. Or whatever. Like, in the, like, f- few days after we came home with my son from the hospital, I watched um, bits and pieces of the newest Jurassic Park film, mm-hmm. which, you know, I found on one of the streaming platforms that I subscribed to. And uh, I was like, well, while I'm, like, sitting on the couch not being able to do anything because this baby either is, like, shitting or sleeping, uh, I might as well, like, watch a really dumb movie. But, like, I thought he was really good at <laughs> <laughs> that yeah, Jurassic Park movie and it it really made me miss him. I was like, why have we, why have I not seen him in anything since Jurassic Park?
1: Yeah. He's really good. He's a good actor. Yeah,
0: he rules. Yeah, and like and I think that like the thing that is so powerful about him in this movie is that because he's Sam Neill because you trust and like him even when he's like saying we got to save my ship after the blood orgy scene, you're like Surely he's the good guy and like this, there's something like some turn will happen where mm-hmm. Sam Neill saves the day, right? That's, that's going to happen.
1: Or weren't you expecting a baby bear kind of turn where like some, like the real weir would peek through the veil of right. what the ship was doing to him and that never happens.
0: It never happens and you're never given any reason to like him at all other than that he's Sam Neill. Or believe that he's savable. Yeah,
1: like he's a casualty from jump. He's not only not redeemable, but there's nothing that Miller can do to bring him back. Right. Here's my film paper. Mm. Like Weir is on fire the entire film.
0: Wow. Weir is the burning man. Weir
1: is the burning man. There's only there's a lot less washing of uh, genitals.
0: <laughs> station. Yeah. yeah, people are taking way fewer pills. Uh-huh. I'd say. Overall, down in the core, I think it's a Peters and Smith are like getting some kind of like energy rod out of the core that they need for their ship to get back. They need 25.
1: This is having to do with the air. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They need this air. They're
0: like air filters or something. Mm hmm. Anyways, Peters uh, does not make it back to the ship because her uh, son reappears and she's convinced to chase him. And she like goes up a ladder and is like walking toward him and walks toward him across like a well that goes right back down into the core. I thought for sure somebody was going to wind up impaled on one of those big spikes in there. And this would have been the moment to do it. But she just falls like on a, on a catwalk across the little water bath that the that the core sits above. I love
1: that she misses the spike though. There's something so much more brutal about her falling into just
0: like a metal railing. Yeah, I guess so. Kind of a bad dummy.
1: <laughs> Up until this moment, the crew people have been experiencing their nightmares in solitude. But this is one of those moments where when Weir finds Peter's body, it begins his... Nightmare, and we see his worst moment, and that has to do with the death of his wife,
0: which was a death by suicide. And it's like a we cut back to what sort of looks like the set where he woke up in the beginning of the film,
1: it sure looks like it, right on down to the same straight razor, yeah, that he used to shave himself
0: with. And uh, yeah, and she cuts her arms in the bathtub, and uh, it's a very upsetting scene. Hey, Dr. Weir, you don't have to keep living there. (laughs) Yeah, move. (laughs) Change the name from Daylight Station to something else. It's not appropriate anymore.
1: Yeah, this is a really tough scene for the same reason that a lot of the other scenes are difficult to process. It's how it uses time, right? Yeah. Like this is a character that knows the end point of what they're seeing and they don't want that end point to happen. And yet they're just on this mental ride that they can't escape. And it's just like slowly dosed out until you see this awful trauma. But then she's back. And it's like a weird perversion of the trauma too, right? Because you see the moment of her death, but then you see her alive again. And she doesn't have eyes like everyone on Event Horizon. Right. That's the club you join when, when you want to go to this dimension,
0: right? I have such
1: wonderful, wonderful.
0: Yeah. Eventually, everyone rips their eyeballs out. Yeah. And then we cut to like a what looks like a grappling hook, like penetrating some steel, and this is Cooper putting the final finishing touches on repairing the uh, the damage to the hull of the Lewis and Clark. He's really excited about this. Damn, I'm good. Smith is really excited about it. Means they can get out of there. But then Smith hears a noise and looks into the, I guess that's the airlock of Lewis and Clark, right? Mm-hmm. And Sam Neill is leaving the ship.
1: Shot from behind, crucially.
0: Yeah. He, yeah. Smith doesn't get to see the whole no eyeballs thing. Uh huh. But he radios to Miller and he's like, Yeah, like weirdly, uh, we're just kind of like walked off the ship and, uh, Lawrence Fishburne looks around in the corridor and sees like one of the multiple bombs that just happens to be the one that's right next to where he's standing (laughs) and ripped out of its bomb holder. Yeah. (laughs) We don't see the scene where Weir is like
1: fumble-fucking around for (laughs) any one of those bombs down the corridor. (laughs) Great scene for Sean Pertwee here though because once it's clear to him that a bomb is on the Lewis and Clark, it's up to him to find it. And the frenzy with which he approaches this moment is so palpable. Like he's, he's basically in a goodwill, like digging through shit until he finally finds it. And the bomb has six seconds left. What do you do with six seconds left? That's not enough time to jacket.
0: Yeah. Not even enough time to run up to the bridge and grab his rosary. Yeah. You know? He yeah. just bows his head and, and takes it. And uh, we see a, nov- a number of uh, internal explosions. We see the ship explode externally. We see Cooper get flung off into space. Miller watches it from the window in the airlock that they were connected to. And it's like shredded space tunnel.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's so much depth to these explosions. They really look great great and cinematic
0: they do and like the camera can fly around in like debris in this movie in a way that is is pretty hard to do given the special effects capabilities of the era and they really do a nice job with that stuff
1: yeah yeah, it's really well done who's left at this point I think it's well, worth asking
0: <laughs> Cooper we catch up with like on a chunk of debris <laughs> yeah he's sort of left he's like well I gotta get back to the ship shit where the fuck am I going why is this shit gonna happen to me
1: it's our final four, right? It's it's Weir, it's Miller, it's Cooper, and it's Stark. Yeah. Because the Jason Isaacs character is the next to die, right? Yeah.
0: And uh, the Jason Isaacs character dying is kind of like the most action movie moment of this movie. Yeah. Well, why do you say that? Just because it turns into like a huge fist fight like for a while.
1: I mean, and this is the scene where... You're presented with the idea of Weir having supernatural strength. Yeah, and I wonder how long they thought about whether or not to do this to Doctor Weir. Like, he has no eyes, and he has supernatural strength. Yeah, does that make him more scary or less scary? I kind of, I don't know.
0: It it felt like a we need to get an, one more kill in this horror movie moment. Yeah, because. I would say that like of the film homage moments, this maybe feels the weakest Mm -hmm. because it just kind of feels like a warmed over Silence of the Lambs, like filleting the guy and opening him up and leaving him hanging moment. Right, and I mean, crucially,
1: at least Weir gives him the respect of displaying him face down.
0: Right, yeah.
1: I think that's good.
0: It's easier to glimpse this part than many (laughs) other parts. Yep. I guess for some reason, the uh, hull repair <laughs> guns are kept in the medical bay. So this gives Lawrence Fishburne an opportunity to arm himself. And uh, Also,
1: like, canonically, I thought we were using adhesive. Yeah. It, it looks a lot different on the bridge if he's shooting uh, a bunch of caulk <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. up there. Yeah. The angles on the bridge when he gets up there are so different and like these are the these are where it really starts to look like a gothic cathedral to me
1: right the the cross-shaped window is an aspect to this
0: yeah and like the like the hull the plating on the walls in the in the bridge is like offset like tile or or stones that you would build a cathedral out of i just don't
1: understand weir's end game here like Weir seems super strong and super smart up until the moment he starts licking shots with this (laughs) firearm (laughs) and decompressing the bridge and and basically killing himself in the process. This is so dumb.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He shoots the window trying to kill Cooper, fails, and there's just like a super long ship decompression scene. And it's pretty good, but it's just so absurd how long it, it goes. Like, It's like, man, like there's really a lot of oxygen on this ship. I mean, I guess it's a big ship, but like, would it really blow this hard for this long or (laughs) would it like eventually start blowing less hard? Yeah. I don't know. It's a lot, but it's one of those action movie
1: science fiction set pieces where it's extremely loud and incredibly visceral and kinetic. I mean, it looks good. It it may not be an original, but I mean, when Weir's hanging on like the Alien Queen, you know exactly what inspired it.
0: Yeah. it's And it's always fun to see the bad guy get spaced, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So Stark and Miller are like getting ready to go home. Cooper makes his way back in through one of the airlocks and they realize that, uh, somehow the ship has turned the gravity drive on. So they only have six minutes and they're going to blow the neck of the ship and separate themselves from engineering. So they've got to leap into action. They've got to split up again because like, one of them needs to get these uh, anti-gravity couches ready for them. One of them needs to go do the explosives.
1: And this is a moment where the ship definitely is aware of their plans and is <laughs> yeah. fighting them. From this moment
0: on. Like, after he said, fuck this ship, and the ship, like, immediately started, like, reacting to things, he should have, you know, started, like, passing notes to people when when he had ideas about what to do next. When <laughs> she crossed over, she was just a ship. But when she came back, she
1: was alive. How surprised are you at how rare it is to see the direct homage to the shining elevator full of blood scene, because in this movie, when you see it, I was like, oh yeah, that's where that's from. But then I started, I tried to think of another example of that. No one touches that movie.
0: yeah But this one does. This one does. And it's like, like you think that's a lot of blood coming out of a thing? We're going to show you a lot of blood coming out of a thing.
1: I love that this film raises the stakes from river of blood to Captain Miller having a slow motion fight scene with a guy on fire in a flaming pool of blood. Like it's the most metal concept ever. Just saying those words together, like fist fight in a flaming pool of blood.
0: Yeah. He's locked himself in the engineering section, Stark and Cooper safe and sound uh, on the other end of the ship. But Miller is locked in with Burning Man, who turns out is not Burning Man, but is in fact weird.
1: He is not chill enough to be Burning Man.
0: Yeah. Burning Man was just an innocent uh, Corman, right? Yeah. That guy wasn't totally evil, the way Weir is. Weir's eyes are back. That's (laughs) nice.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I've got complicated feelings about this scene because the weird character kind of breaks the rules of the story here. He's like, oh yeah, the reason I'm back is because the ship brought me back. The ship wants me to live. Yeah. The ship and I are in love. (laughs) (laughs) And like, if that were true, how much earlier could Weir have been brought back after being blown out of the front? And like, did his body get brought back onto the ship or is this an entirely new construction? Like, how is this actually happening like, I wish I didn't have these logical questions, but I really do want to know the rules of this movie, and the movie does not want you to know the rules of it.
0: No. At this point, uh, I th- I read that this was, like, sort of a Franken ending that they made out of two different endings that they shot. Oh. And what were the two endings? I think originally it was Burning Man that he fought, mm-hmm. and it didn't test well, so they brought Weir back to, like, say some more stuff about hell.
1: I'll tell you why. No one cares about Burning Man. Like, it's an interesting moment in Miller's life, but it's not important in the context of the entire film.
0: Yeah. And, you know, we're, seems eviler in retrospect throughout the film because of this scene. And, you know, we get a lot more, like, horrible imagery and, like, crucifixion and maggots and stuff. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but Miller finds the detonator for the explosives uh at the end of the fight and condemns himself to hell in order to save everyone else. This is one of the scariest
1: parts of the film to me. It's not that he dies, it's that he lives. Yeah. And I love the subtlety of the effect too, right? Like cutting to the exterior and watching yeah. what happens to the engineering section, it's so quiet. Yeah. Where it's going is going to be the most awful place you can imagine, but the way that it gets there is almost peaceful.
0: It's the opposite of what your instinct would be and more effective for it. Yeah. But the shockwave blows the crew section clear of the drive section. That's why you need all those explosives, right? Yeah. That's what it's meant to do. That's what they do. Uh And the drive section goes into a uh, a hole that... Sort of like, it's hard to tell if that hole opens in space or just like in the surface of Neptune, but it opens and uh, and down it goes. And uh, yeah, the sequel that centers on Miller's character is going to be unwatchable. <laughs>
1: I didn't even look into whether there was a sequel. No one's tried to do that, right? I don't think so. <laughs> I hope not. No, there was no sequel. Yeah. And rightfully so. Mm-hmm, hmm We get one of the many Aliens-style endings to this film. Yeah. Because uh, Cooper and Jolie Richardson get into their compartments and are, are woken up again. You know, they get in next to Baby Bear, I should say. Yeah. And they're woken up 72 days later. And it's a nightmare for the start character. Yeah. Because her rescuer is the eyeless weir
0: god fucking damn it this guy is everywhere
1: and the moment this film chooses to end i think is is part of its greatness
0: right it's like you're in your fucking grab couch you killed all the bad guys at the end of the movie and then you get rescued and fucking weir are you kidding me (laughs) he's in the he's on the rescue team who hires that guy for a rescue team what He's got fucking cuts all over his face. How can he safely rescue anyone?
1: Yeah, you you better give Weir the mask that goes uh, like all the way around his head.
0: Is Rescue One better than the rescue team that they were on? Is this like the, like, these are like the really serious rescue people. They seem to have better equipment, you know? This is,
1: <laughs> and this is where the film ends. Yeah. Because this is revealed as a hallucination. Yeah. Stark is on the ground, traumatized, and then we throw to credits, and that's the end of Event Horizon.
0: Yeah, and then we get more techno while the credits roll. I can't believe it said the end. I love
1: where this film chooses to end itself because it's on you to consider the trauma that happens after. The idea that Stark and Coop... I feel like Cooper's going to be fine.
0: Cooper is like, a Cooper's unflappable I don't think he Really had any Like horror moments Did he Like he didn't see Any any fucked up shit
1: But between Stark and Baby Bear
0: Yeah Baby Bear's gonna need A lot of therapy
1: I mean Not only Mental But His body's <laughs> Yeah he's gonna need Some stitches as well <laughs> He's in the brown tube You know <laughs> <laughs> like when yeah. the rescue crew comes on the ship and it's not weir
0: under the helmet he's like yeah green 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 brown <laughs> Uh-oh. they're gonna have to take him right out of that tube and put him in the tube that luke skywalker was in and yeah. uh empire strikes back after they rescued him from the snow yeah <laughs> yeah that's how you get better from that level of injury i think
1: did you like this very scary movie ben
0: I wouldn't say that I like watching it. <laughs> It's still fucking scary to me. It's still like gross and upsetting. And like, those aren't really feelings I love going for when I go to consume entertainment. And that's not to pass judgment on anyone who does seek that stuff out. It's just not my speed personally as a movie, but I do respect it. And I think it is like weirdly well done for the... Thing that it is like I don't think this movie can exist without Alien a lot of the other movies that we've cited as like things that it pays homage to are such important source material that it's really hard to imagine this movie without any of them but did it bump you because it didn't bump me no it never bumped me and I think that the thing that's kind of amazing about this movie is that it like is so much more depraved in the horror without feeling like it's just schlocky for schlock's sake. Like, it's not a early Peter Jackson movie where it's just like, hey, we're going to do Buckets of Blood because it's really fun to have buckets of blood flying all over the place in a movie. You know, it it doesn't feel like uh, exploitation in that way.
1: Yeah, it's...
0: Which is also not to judge, like, early Peter Jackson movies. Like, those movies are successful on the terms that they set up for themselves.
1: I don't know when it happened, but, like, I have next to no tolerance for a Blumhouse film. But I have a higher tolerance for a film of this era in this genre than than I
0: thought. Totally. How about you? Did you, uh, like, how did this stack up? This movie played a role in your, like, conception of what a scary movie was, it sounds like.
1: Yeah. And in that way, I built it up into kind of an apex predator Uh of a film in my mind. Then I won't say it didn't deserve it. But, like, I built it up so much before I rewatched it that I don't think any film could have risen to what I was expecting. Yeah. I won't say that, like, my expectations defanged it at all, but (laughs) it made me want to go and revisit the other films that affected me that I didn't return to from this moment in my life for whatever reason. Like, I think it was good and constructive for me to go back to this film and watch it with modern eyes. Yeah. I'm with you. I respect the hell out of it. Like, the choices it makes are brave and interesting. The casting is great. Like, the casting choices of this film are part of the reason it's a success in my mind. It really muddies its own waters in its rulemaking in a way that horror films so often are so prescriptive about the rules of themselves and how things function, that there's something about this film that is, uh, it's a version of horror that's filled with such anarchy Mm -hmm. that it keeps things unpredictable and that unpredictability is scary. Like I still don't know if the ship is alive. Like I feel like you could write two different film papers making the case either way. Right. And I'm glad I don't know the answer to that question. I'm glad the ship doesn't start talking through a person. Like Weir is still a person, but Weir has a point of view, and it's not like the ship is puppet-mastering him. No, I never believe that anyway. No, and the idea of of people going collectively crazy is such a scary concept. It's what makes that episode of TNG so frightening for me. Like that is a horrifying concept that most horror films can't get close to in terms of scariness. I just, I'm really glad I rewatched it because I think I'm glad I no longer fear this movie as a thing. Yeah. Like I think that's good. Like that's a good thing to have done for myself. But also I'm a little bit sad because I do like those things in my life that are like so pure that they cannot change. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like there are very few things in my life that I believe so utterly that they can't just be moved. Right. And this is one of those things that like I thought for sure this was the scariest movie I would ever see. And that's not true any longer. Yeah. And that makes the watching of th- of this movie with you feel like an important moment in
0: my life. I don't want to put you on the spot, but has this moved something else to the top of the leaderboard of scariest movie you've ever seen?
1: That's a great question. It's too good of a question for me to be able to answer on the spot is what it is.
0: <laughs> like, that's great. I mean, The Exorcist is the one that I always think of as like, I mean, and I saw that in the movie theater when they re-released it and it fucking scared the shit out of me.
1: Honestly, like I think Hereditary is probably at the top now.
0: Yeah. I haven't seen that one. So, and I, and I like know not to see it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Hereditary in a theater with like six other people at 11 at night. Yeah, one of whom
0: is in a dirty hooded sweatshirt and you're like not quite sure if he's jacking it. So much of a horror
1: movie experience is about the moment that you see it and that was just a perfectly horrifying scene and setting to experience that with. So maybe Hereditary is at the top. We should never do that movie <laughs> as a bonus episode though because that's a movie I definitely don't want to see ever again.
0: Well, interestingly, like this movie borrows so heavily from so many other films, but the thing that inspired us to check it out for this show was that like they used some footage from it in Voyager and there was yeah. an episode of Voyager that we reviewed recently that had a space folding ship idea in it. Yeah. And uh that one did not pass through hell on <laughs> its way to uh to meeting up with the voyager or anything but yeah. um but yeah like i think that this movie did like touch something that was in the zeitgeist in 1997 and uh, i'm glad we did it, it was a good halloween uh, spook fest for us yeah man happy halloween Happy Halloween to you, my baby is gonna dress up as a lemon for Halloween. A decidedly non-scary thing for a baby to dress up as. I love the Halloween costume as a thing
1: concept. I think that's great. Yeah, like it's not a uh, it's not a portmanteau in any way. It's just I'm a thing. Yeah, I'm a lemon.
0: That's great. <laughs>
1: Are you a citrus squeezer? What
0: is your costume going to be? Oh, man, that's dark. (laughs) I just mean like with hugs. Yeah. No, no, I'm just going as dad, I think. Mm. (laughs) Spooky. Hey, Adam. What's that, Ben? Did you find yourself a drunk Shimoda in the 1997 film Event Horizon? Incredible. Drunk Drunk Shimoda! Shimoda. I think if you're going to
1: knock this movie... For anything specific, you might see the Cooper character as a little bit of a clang. Like Cooper is not a different movie, <laughs> <laughs> but that's what makes Cooper fun.
0: Yeah. And yeah, it's interesting that Cooper and Stark are the two characters that we see the least of their horror. And they're the, the
1: survivors. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Like, they're just the survivors because the ship didn't take any interest in them. Like, Ripley was the survivor because she fucking survived. Yeah. Like, Coop and Stark are like, yeah, we just, like, didn't have that many, like, horrifying previous life experiences for the ship to draw on to torture us with. The thing
1: about 70s, 80s, and 90s horror movies that isn't really a thing anymore is that, like, those films knew how to take a breath. Yeah, yeah. In the horror, and like give you a moment to not just relax, but like it's like a well composed meal. Like it's not just savory and it's not just sweet or it's not just acidy or it's not just whatever. Like
0: everything on the plate cannot be beige.
1: Right, but in a modern horror film, modern horror is so relentless, and that's part of the reason I really don't have an appetite for it. But the Cooper character is a part of this era's horror films that does not continue on in the decades after. And the characters like Cooper in the other films of this genre are what made those movies so fun. So I think that's what's gonna make his character my drunk Shimoda. What about you?
0: Yeah, I think I'm gonna join you on the Cooper square. I mean. Stark is a, maybe a close second just because like also doesn't undergo any personal nightmare delusion stuff Yeah, and gets away with it. But Cooper does that while also like having a bunch of laugh lines in the movie. So yeah, I like that guy. Cooper has no nightmares. Yeah. (laughs) Cooper's just chilling. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Adam, we've reached the end of this special Halloween bonus episode and uh, I'm glad we did it. Me too. Um, full of gratitude for the Friends of DeSoto who support our work and uh, enable us to do all these bonus episodes.
1: The bonus episodes are like the, the full-size candy bar house yeah, on totally. the street. You know, that's what we're doing. We're giving you the full size.
0: But unlike the full-size candy bar house where you like don't necessarily want the word to get out so that mm-hmm. the house is overrun next year, tell your friends. if you enjoyed this episode yeah. and you have uh, friends that enjoy the greatest generation or greatest trek let them know that the stuff behind the paywall is uh, is worth it we'd appreciate you uh, making the case for it to someone else because it is how we finance the whole dang operation
1: yeah and social media is a great place to do it so yeah. if people are talking about horror films online maybe they're talking about Event Horizon specifically Yeah. Or maybe tell a friend of DeSoto or someone else about how much fun this was
0: uh, whatever you choose to do, we just really, really appreciate your support, and we hope you have a great Halloween season, and uh, enjoy the spooky movies you're probably watching right now. <laughs> Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween, Anna.